This What's Trending conversation is brought to you by Henley Business Radio. Hello, welcome to Henley Business Radio. I'm John Foster Pedley, the Dean of Henley Business School in Africa. And it's my great delight to welcome today Dr. John DiMartini. Welcome, John. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to explain. These are sort of conversations we have, which are curious, interesting, provocations, really, in a constructive way. And if anyone wants to follow us on hashtag What's Trending, that's where to find us. Welcome to South Africa yet again, because you're quite a visitor here quite often, aren't you? Yes, I, I think it's almost 13 years now. I've been coming about four times a year. And we have an office in South Africa here in Johannesburg. We're, I guess you could say, South African to, to some degree. <laughs> well, that's great. And you're Australian to some degree and Singaporean. I, I, you travel all around the world in your speaking, don't you? Yes, I, I think I've been in 23 or 4 countries already this year. Yes, <laughs> uh, those air miles are building up, I hope. Yes. But I'm really, really curious about you, John. But could you share a bit of your background and how did you get to come to do what you're doing now? And what drove you to do that? Well, I, um, I had challenges as a child in learning. Mm -hmm. And I was told in first grade that I would never be able to read or write or communicate, never mount a thing, never go very far in life. And I was okay in sports. I did well in sports. And my teacher said, you know, put him into sports because he's not going to make it in school. I asked questions through school in order to make it through elementary school mm -hmm. by asking the smartest kids, which is actually a gift because it taught me how to ask questions. Absolutely. But I made it through school with the help of the smartest kids. I dropped out of school. Really around age 13, I left home at that time and became sort of a street kid. I lived in a bowling alley for a while and uh, on the streets as a, as a teenager. And I picked up surfing as a sport. And Texas wasn't the surf capital. And so I hitchhiked out to California when I was 14. Right. And then when I was 15, I went off to Hawaii where I wanted to ride big waves. I was a, a social climber. I first lived under a bridge and I moved <laughs> into a park bench. And then into a bathroom and then to an abandoned car and eventually into a tent and kind of grass house and did what a teenager did in the late 60s and 70s. I was there, too. So I remember. Yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, we were trying to expand our consciousness mm -hmm. through various means. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I um, I nearly died when I was 17. And, and what was that? I, I ended up having uh, cyanide strychnine poisoning. Luckily, a lady found me in my tent. If it wasn't for her, I don't think I'd be here. Mm. And she led me to a little health food store, which led me to go to a class one night. Mm. I never went to classes, but something intuitively said to go to this particular class mm. where a very inspiring man spoke. And in one night, one hour, this one man with his one message really spoke to me and got to me and made me believe that maybe I could overcome my learning problems. I, I really did want to be intelligent. I never believed I was going to be. And that night he inspired me enough to think that maybe, just maybe, I could overcome my learning problems and learn how to read and go on to be more intelligent. And at the time, I thought, wow, an intelligent person is a teacher. And so I had mm. a dream since I was 17 to want to teach. And I knew I loved traveling, so I wanted to teach and travel around the world. And 45 years later, I'm teaching and traveling around the world. <laughs> I guess I, I never got away from that one mm. primary objective. Mm. And I just kept doing it. And I guess, you know, sooner or later, if you keep doing something, everybody else dies out, you end up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'd say persistence matters, but that's a spine-tingling story. I mean, that's extremely motivational. And I, to be honest, I resonate because I was there in the late 60s. I probably did lots of the same things you did. I probably had hair as long as you had. I didn't get to Hawaii and I didn't surf because I was British. So, you know, very different. We don't have much surf over there. 
But I, I kind of resonate with that. And that consciousness expanding time when you've done what people did in those, in those years, actually, it's probably really important to you. Were those moments things that actually really work for you today? I think that once I got inspired, mm. I started to study with this gentleman. He had a little class in the and morning. And who is he? Let's... His name was Paul Bragg. Mm -hmm. He was very much interested in health education. Mm and helping people in America. He opened up a thousand health food stores. So he was an entrepreneur that, that built a thousand health food stores across America to help America have a better health awareness. Mm. So he was a crusader for health and personal development. And so when I spent time with him, he taught me quite a number of principles that I still use today. And um, that made me want to go back to Texas because I first the surf went down for the summer, <laughs> and I wanted to go back to Texas and see my parents, and they encouraged me to take a GED, which is a high school equivalency test, mm. and I guessed and passed. I had me a high school degree by guessing. Guessed and passed. Just I just put a, a little black mark in the in the little box. You know the little <laughs> you had like five little circles and you had to fill them in, and uh, somehow I guessed and passed. I went on and did the same thing and I passed a college entrance exam and I started college. But when I got there, the guessing didn't work, and I failed. Mm, mm. And I almost gave up on the dream to travel and teach. Mm. If it wasn't for what my mother said to me when I was 18, I don't know what would have happened. But she said, when I failed the test, I got a 27, I needed a 72. I guess I was dyslexic. And uh, my mom said, when she saw me crying on the living room floor, she said, son, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world like you dream whether you return to Hawaii and ride big waves like you've done, or you return to the streets and panhandle as a bum. I want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what. That's and that, that unconditional love yeah. mm. that she had at that moment was exactly what I needed, because at that moment, my hand went into a fist. I looked up and I saw a vision of traveling the world and teaching. And I said to myself, I'm going to amass this thing called reading and studying and learning. I'm going to amass this thing called teaching. And I'm going to travel the world, and I'm not going to let anybody on the face of the earth stop me from it, not even myself. So and I went in there and locked myself in my room and started reading a dictionary until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. Well, that's extraordinary. And there are so many people with these so-called learning deficiencies. I mean, they're real. I'm not so-called. They're real learning deficiencies. But also the schooling system typically doesn't know how to work with that. So this isn't a question of intelligence. This is the way the mind works to grapple with knowledge in traditional ways. And what I've found with people with what so-called learning difficulties are often extraordinarily intelligent people. You are a humble man. I can see that. So I'm not going to ask you to say that about yourself. But I think you've proven that. I mean, you've proven you've been able to succeed and overcome those things. That's an amazing thing, an amazing story for people to learn about from you. And just for the record, you've written how many books now? I really don't know all of them because I've, I've written a lot of manuals. Mm. And there's probably 300 when I look at the manuals and books and self-help books and textbooks and about 300 in, in total. So, so you've written 300 books on a basis of childhood learning difficulties and that, that extraordinary story you've told. Yeah, so, I've, I've been, I've, I, some people call it neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love reading and learning and writing what I've learned and right. organizing that knowledge so I can share it. And I, a lot of the manuals and books that I've read, they're not been for the public. Some have been for some seminar programs, many of them. But some are just because they're my organization and mm -hmm. my desire to want to learn. And, and I learned if I organize my knowledge, I, I learn it better. 
So before we get on to the what's trending conversation, which we'll, we'll do in a minute, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to ask you a little bit more about you. So you got to this position with this dream, the fist in the air, and now you want to go and teach and travel the world and share what you're learning. So what happened next? That moment where I almost gave up and I walked myself in the room, I started reading the dictionary and mm-hmm. memorizing 30 words a day. And my mom assisted me in... She made sure that before I went to bed at night that I could spell the words, pronounce the words properly, mm-hmm. and use them in a sentence that had meaning. And that was challenging to somebody with dyslexia. Well, I eventually gained enough vocabulary where I was understanding some of the meaning of some of the reading, and I started excelling in school. And I had more of a determination than a lot of the students mm-hmm. at age 18. A lot of them were just going to school because that's what you do. And I was really, really, really wanting to learn And I started just reading 19 hours a day, sometimes 20 hours a day. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't want to socialize. I didn't want to do anything else. I just became like a bookworm. And I started to excel. And I had a student come to me and ask me to teach them, and another student, and another student. And students started coming up to me because I started passing and doing really well all of a sudden. And I started gathering students. And I'd be in the library, and sometimes they'd gather around the table, and they'd want me to tutor them. So I became a tutor. Before I was even 19, I was tutoring. And then uh, right before my 19th birthday, a really amazing thing happened. My mother said, what do you want for your birthday? You were born on Thanksgiving Day, Mm. and it's coming up on Christmas. What do you want for your birthday and for Christmas? And I said, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth, the greatest writings humanity's ever created from around the world by the greatest minds. And she said, you sure you don't want a (laughs) T-shirt? And I said, no, I want the greatest books. Tempting for an ex-surfer, though, yes. The greatest books. She just went, okay. Well, she had a brother who was a professor at MIT who had a chemistry and physics background, Mm. astrophysics. And he, as a very kind gesture, sent to our house on a flatbed truck two six-by-six-by-six-foot wooden crates with thousands of books in it, literally a library. And... I don't know where he got them all. I know some of them were his, but I think he just knew how to get access to these books. And I went out on a crowbar and opened them up and put them in my room, and I filled my room with thousands of books, and I just sat there and read all day. And every imaginable topic I could get my hands on, anything that would allow me to help the expansion of human awareness and potential Mm. and to help people do something extraordinary with their life, I was interested in. And that didn't matter what field it was. I just started reading. I wanted to learn. And that catalyzed further attraction of students Mm. to want to learn. And I started, by the time I went to the University of Houston, I ended up having 100 to 150 students gathered under the trees each day or in the cafeteria if it was raining. And they would gather and they would do questions and we'd have questions and answers, dialogues every day out under the trees. And that happened on a daily basis. By the time I went on to professional school, I was teaching every single night. So I was doing six and seven nights a week. I was teaching every night on whatever I read that day. And then when I got out into practice, I taught as a way of generating patience mm-hmm. and growing my practice. And then I eventually, when I, my practice did very well. And in 18 months, I had 5,000 square foot office and five doctors working for me and 12 staff. And that was unheard of at the time for most doctors just getting out of school. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is then I started being asked to speak to health professionals on practice management and, and patient care. And then that went into different health professionals and it went into entrepreneurs. And I realized that there's a limited number of health professionals, and the, this translates into business. So I went on to start speaking to most industries. And today, it's, I get to do that today. And at some point, you had to give up the practice, and then you, that childhood dream or that teenage dream just came to pass, 
and here you are now teaching people about how to improve their lives, you know, about themselves. And with that polymath experience you went through, you've got so much to draw on that you're able to reach and inspire people. Is that how it is? I think that's the gist of it, because I... When you do and watch some interviews of Warren Buffett, you see he kind of tap dances to work. He loves what he does. He mm -hmm. spends his hours mm -hmm. doing that. I love what I do. I love researching, writing, and traveling, and teaching. That's the four things that I love most. So I just keep doing it. So there you are. You've got that background. You've got this experience. You travel the world. You get to see what's happening in business and society across the globe. What are you amazed by, alarmed by, excited by? In other words, Dr. Demartini, what's trending in your world? Well... I, it was interesting. I was just in Singapore, Malaysia, mm. Australia, and here in the last 10 days, and uh, in London just for that, 14 days ago. And so I've, I get to see quite a number of things, but mm. it really is the common denominator. People around the world want to be appreciated and loved for who they are. They want to do something that's meaningful to make a difference. And in the business world, they want to have to overcome the projection of assumptions that they have about what the world needs and they have to learn how to actually find out what the world needs and meet those needs. So let's dig into there a bit, okay? You talked about projection of assumptions about what the world needs and then finding out what the world really needs. So yeah. what are those assumptions that the world... Well, that's individualistic the to the entrepreneur. I yeah. mean, I, many times people have a very... They have a void in their own life mm -hmm. and then they assume that everybody has that void and then they project that onto the world and they think what they're inspired or excited about that the world should be excited about it. Mm -hmm. And in many cases it is, but it may be a niche. And so they, they struggle to get the world to appreciate what they have to offer mm -hmm. instead of actually finding out what the world is actually looking for and needing and then finding out what you would love to do and find out what the overlap because then you now have a demand and a supply available to meet. And when people do that, they all of a sudden they flourish because now they feel like they're actually doing something they love and also they're meeting the needs. And I assist people in finding that, that overlapping niche. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, it feels like there's an abundance of people wanting what they want. It makes it a lot easier for them to grow businesses. So that's not just about growing businesses. It's about empathizing and understanding what's going on. And it sounds, as we speak about it, you're just going to find out what the world really wants. But you do more than tell people. I assume that you help people develop the means to find that sort of thing. How do, how do people get to see those things? I found that each individual has a unique set of priorities, set of values that they live their life by. Mm -hmm. And whenever they're living in alignment and congruently with their highest value, they have the greatest degree of resiliency, adaptability to, to change, uh, they're most aware, their sensory, their decision-making, and their motor functions are at their peak. Their executive center comes online where they can see a vision, they can strategize it, they can execute it, and they can self-govern and so they have the highest potential if they're willing to be congruent with who they really are when they go after their pursuit. They're also, because of their adaptability, they're adaptable to translate what they're up to, not in a rigid fashion, but in an adaptable fashion to people's needs. Right. And so that gives them a competitive advantage. Right. So when they fill their day with the highest priority actions that inspire them that also meet the customer's needs, it's almost impossible not to grow the business. I always say the symptoms of a business are a feedback mechanism to the conscious individual to get them to live authentically and to let them have integrity. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, they create symptoms in the business until they get there. And some of them keep striving for assumptions of who they are, and they don't know exactly who they are. 
because they haven't really looked at what they really value and what their life demonstrates is valuable. Mm-hmm. And when they do, then they, they flourish. If not, they perish. It strikes me, from my experience, I don't know whether you would agree, that trying to live by your values requires courage. It's scary to do something that you think is bigger than you. You're letting go of all the things that you've been told you should do, and you're living to something that's really you. Surely that is a brave act. How do you encourage I, people I to just do that? made that statement in Malaysia mm. uh, last week that it's easy to walk on coals, it's easy to bungee jump, but it's really difficult is actually being yourself. So I'm agreeing with that because Kohlberg, the psychologist, showed that a lot of people are trying to avoid pain and seek pleasure. Yeah. And they're hedonistic and they're run by dopamine. Mm. They're narrowed in their view. And it's a, one of a black and white, non-resilient state. And um, they're thinking the world's supposed to match whatever their values are. And they usually struggle from that. And they're looking for immediate gratification. They usually become a consumer of things that stimulate dopamine mm. to survive. Mm. And they end up living through vicariously other people's brands instead of building a brand. And then there's people that subordinate to mother, father, preacher, teacher. Yes. And then they can't break through the injunctions that have been addicted to them on their journey uh, as a youth. In their early years with their most plastic, malleable, impressionable minds, these have been overlaid on them. And now they're spending their life trying to escape them. Is that what you're saying? Well, they're, yeah. they're, Freud called that the superego, the injunction mm-hmm. and the injection of the, mm-hmm. the authority's values. Mm. After they break through that, which some don't, then they go on to social peer pressure, tradition and conventions at various levels and dynamics of society. And if they can break through that, they reach that one percenters, the transcendence. Mm. Steve Jobs called them the misfits. And they're the ones that are, that are the renegades, the mavericks, the unborrowed visionaries, and Rand says it, the unborrowed visionaries that are willing to get into their executive center and see a vision that other people can't in see. That incredible commencement speech that he did. I remember, I remember yes. listening to that. It wasn't extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, it's the misfits. So I teach people how to be misfits in that respect. Great. I teach people how to access what's truly meaningful to them. Because I always say that if you require motivation, mm. you haven't found your mission. Because motivation is an extrinsic system in most cases. Exactly. And, there, and it's a, you, know, you need punishment if you don't do something, and you need reward mm. if you do it. But an intrinsic value, which I dif- differentiate from motivation as an mm. inspiration. I just had the opportunity this week to spend time with Tony Fernandez, who has mm. Asia Air. And we had a nice chat, and we spoke together at the conference. Mm. And he's a very humble guy, very inspired mm. guy. Mm. And he talks about a story that... When he was very young, around 13 years old, he was sent off to boarding school. And he was sent to, I think, London from Malaysia to get a better education. But he couldn't, they didn't have enough money to be able to fly him back and forth to see him or him see them, the parents. So he grew up feeling like, it's not fair, I don't even get to see my parents, but I'm getting an education. That was a void in his life, and he felt that I don't want people to have to not be able to get on a flight because they can't afford it. So when he built an airline, he knew nothing about an airline. He worked for Virgin Records, and he interacted with, with uh, Richard Branson. And he got inspired by the idea that Richard took on an airline. Who also knew nothing about flying. And knew nothing about it. And that encouraged him to go out and build an airline from scratch, mm. knowing nothing about it, for one purpose. And that is to make sure that the person that normally can't fly can fly. And he basically underbid all the fares to such a degree that Singapore Airlines and the other airline, Malaysian Airlines, were affected by it. And he ended up now being on his way to being a billionaire. Mm. So what he did is he found a niche 
he found something that meant something to him, that's inspiring to him, and he pursued it in a relentless way because it had a deeper meaning than just success. Mm. I find that common in people that do extraordinary things as they access that core value, the most inspiring mission that they have in their mm. life, that usually from the journey of their, their earlier life, that means something that also serves the world. And so finding that is a key. So that's finding that purpose. So we talked about what's trending, and you mentioned about developing resilience, but also finding these core values and finding this authenticity. But I would have to agree with you, absolutely, that is what's trending. People are searching for that authenticity. What else is trending, do you think? Well, today, there's such a transition and transformation going on into the digital world mm. that people in their 40s and up are having to adapt very radically. And I know I'm one of those. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, Definitely up from 40 with me. Yeah, up from 40. I'm 63 <laughs> almost. And so, you know, having to adapt to that fast-paced technological world that requires a certain area of the brain and, and activities that is not typically thought of as the business world at one time, mm -hmm. and surrounding yourself with experts around you that know how to do that, so you can, one, learn, and two, you can delegate it to a people around you that can go and get that done. That is a, a fast transformation that's having to go on in the world in many, many businesses. I mean, I've seen it in almost every business out there in the last five to ten years. It's, it's just a, a, a constant, how do I keep up with all the, the social media, the digital, the, the world that's online? I mean, look at Amazon, what's going on with Amazon. I mean, even Walmart's being affected. And, and now uh, Warren Buffett even pulled out of Walmart and went into Amazon as a, as a good example. So that's a major transition of, of what's going on out there. And that's so a big trend. If I understand that, there's two things there. One is the necessity to adapt to this increasingly fast pace of transformation in the digital world. But beneath that, there's this requirement for us, for us all at any age to be learning more and more and learning faster and faster, that's unpacking it. what we know and reinventing things. Is it both those things? Which you're yes, they're, about? they're simultaneous. Yeah. My experience... I have developed ways of defining uh, the values of people because I, mm -hmm. I really do a lot of talking about values. You have to you have something called the Demartini method, was it? It's, it's, well, uh, the Demartini method is a method yeah. that's a little different than the value determination. Mm -hmm. okay. I, I have a value determination method and a value right. application okay. system that I use in companies. Mm -hmm. And many people, if you ask them what their values are, they'll tell you social idealisms. They'll tell you what their parents told them they, exactly. they should be. They'll exactly. tell them what they think it's supposed to be. Just like if you interview somebody, they'll tell you what you... values, not their authentic ones. It's not yeah. their real authentic yeah. values. Hmm. Your life demonstrates your values. Right. And so your decisions, every decision you make is based on what you believe in that moment, in that split second, what's going to give you the greatest advantage or disadvantage to the data that you have. Hmm. And you're going to absorb the data and filter the data according to what you value. So what I do is I look at how people fill their space, how they spend their time, what really truly energizes them, where they spontaneously are energized, uh, what they spend their money on, where they're most organized, where they're most disciplined, uh, what they think about, visualize, and internally dialogue with themselves about most that's coming true, what do they most converse with other people about spontaneously and want to talk about, uh, what inspires them and brings a tear of inspiration to their, their eyes, what is it that's most frequent and consistent, persistent in the goals that they have that are coming true, mm -hmm. and what do they love learning about and studying about and they naturally want to learn. And I look at those variables, at those determinants, because they give me a more realistic, objective view of what they actually live 
not what they fantasize. And that's quite different from many approaches. People say, go away and think about your values. But you're taking a scientific researcher's perspective on this. You're saying, no, observe the behaviors that people do in life, and that will reveal their values. Well, I, I find yeah. it when and, we and actually... introspect in the same way. When we go through there and they do that introspection, mm. and they really look at that very carefully, mm. there's a, a gamma burst, there's an aha going on in the brain. Mm. All of a sudden they go, no wonder I'm getting the results I'm getting because they realize that they're creating results accordingly. I have very commonly people saying, well, I keep sabotaging, I can't stay focused. Why am I not staying focused? And what they're actually thinking they're wanting to stay focused on isn't really what they value. Right. And they keep defaulting back onto what they really value. And when they finally discover that, they go, no wonder I keep doing this, even though I say I want to do this. Albert Einstein said the greatest leadership is exemplification. Yes. And so you are exemplifying, when you're congruent, you exemplify sure. your intentions. Mm, of course. Your attentions, intentions, and I decisions. I say of course, but it's not so obvious actually yeah. in, in all our real life. But, yeah. but the second there's congruency, there's a mm. magnetism. Mm. And because there's an innate yearning inside every human being to live that authentic self, because mm. they want to be loved and appreciated for who they are, and who they are yeah. is a reflection of that. Yeah. The second you are living that, you automatically magnetize people opportunities into your life to help you get what that intention is there's a certain focus i mean i'm i've met you now and we've talked for a while and i can observe in you an extraordinary focus you know, that's something you have you you're clear in your thinking you've you have a full emotional life i'm sure and when you need to focus you're extremely focused can you comment on that is it right that you need focus or does this sort of focus just come through living your values and having a purpose? It's not a willpower. Mm. It's a spontaneity that yeah. emerges the second you're pursuing what's truly meaningful to you. And so the disciplines and the organization... It just come automatically. They, right, they fall in behind I, Nobody, right. I, for 45 almost mm. years, I don't think you could find anybody on the earth that would say, oh, well, I needed to motivate Dr. Martini somehow to get him to do his research and teaching. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be motivated. Right. I don't seek motivation. I'm not mm -hmm. interested in persuasion and rhetoric from the outside world. I'm interested in helping people identify what it is that's intrinsically inspiring to them, that has deep meaning to them, that they can't wait to get up in the morning and do, that actually serves other people. So I'm reflecting as you speak about schools and business schools, and I'm just visualizing a school that works in the methods that you're talking about so so children get aligned with what they're interested in rather than some syllabus that we will should believe is going to do them good and do good for them in life and a business school that does the same thing so people are taught how to focus on the things they want and then from a business school businesses that do the same thing if you already talked about the people are aligned with what they can and want to do and those businesses through that passion creating extraordinary value out in society that's it is that the sort of cycle you're generating yes i'd like to share this um, yeah. right here in south africa mm. over the last oh five or six years periodically we've had the opportunity with a gentleman named raymond martin from the board of education right to speak to some schools and one of the schools was Alexandra Township. Mm. And they had a very low matric pass rate, like 27 children out of 100 at the time. And we went in and we, we took the teachers and I did the value determination process, which takes mm. about 30 minutes. We then did the value applications linking process. We took the curriculum that each teacher was responsible for. And we asked them, how specifically is teaching this class going to help you fulfill what is most meaningful to you? And we found out the degree of engagement based on the degree of fluency in their ability to answer. Their fluency was a reflection of their congruency. Mm -hmm. 
And when we saw non-congruency, we saw the grades and the reflection of what was going on because students don't want to be around an uninspired teacher. So what then we did is we made links. We spent three hours making a link and showing them how doing these classes will help them fulfill what's meaningful to them, which made their engagement level go up. And when they're wanting to be in class, more students want to be there. Then we went to the students, and we identified their individual values. And I found that there was a little bit of an autocratic behavior to the teachers and the school system to the students. We know best. We're going to teach you your values. And they're talking down, not having equity or equanimity within themselves or equity between them. Mm-hmm. They're talking down, which automatically makes people want to shut down. Certainly. And there's no way to access values. You it can't goes act- back to that thing about the parental values you talked about. Here are more parental values. Take these on board. Not exactly. And yet. that's right. not how you get geniuses. No, yeah. That's how you get drones. Exactly. And so what I did is I went into the children and I showed them how to identify their values. Mm-hmm. And I told them that you deserve to know how each of your classes are going to help you fulfill what's meaningful to you. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher, we just educated the teacher on this. Then we, what we did is we took the classes that the students were going to take, and we linked them to their values. And we made them make 30 links. How specifically is this class going to help you fulfill what's most important to you, your top three values? And we made them link and engage them in going to class. The second they're engaged, the blood supply, oxygen, glucose goes into the executive center of the brain where they're more strategic, they're more engaged, they're more objective, they're not in their amygdala where their animal behavior is going on. And they're not sitting there going through, I want an immediate gratification. And they're not labeled attention deficit, defiant, disordered, and all these labels that we put. And then I took and asked the teachers to take their top three values and the students' top three values because mm-hmm. we found a collective list of values from them. And then we asked how specifically is the, this collective group of values going to help you as a teacher? And how is this teacher's values going to help each of these? And we made links in there. The total period was three hours before the school curriculum three and a half hours for the students, and another hour and a half doing the links in a class collectively. 97%. 97%. Now, we went into rate. a company. There's a company in... That's in a, sorry, I just need to reflect on that for a moment in the South African context. This is that a, was a major jump. A township school with poor education, with very few resources. Some people don't even have food to eat. They, some of the schools have to give food to the students. They had a 27% pass rate. And by those methods by motivating and engaging people, you lifted that to 97% and gave those children the future they would never have seen before. Exactly. I'm a firm believer that every child wants to learn. They just Mm. want to learn what's meaningful to them. Mm. There's a child every week, you see children that are labeled this and that. Mm. And at home, they're sitting there for six hours straight in front of the video game, no problem. They They can sit there and learn and absorb everything about those video games. But the question is, they can't see how the classes they're taking are going to help them in their video games. And we're sitting there shutting down their video games I'm sure the parents of Bill Gates probably did it one time. Guilty. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a parent of young kids, and, and 12, 11-year-old, and always shutting down the iPad. And instead of showing them how this is going to yeah. help them with their video games, which mm. then expands the repertoire, and they mm. then get engaged in this because right. it's going to help them what they want. Now, we went into a company. I had a gentleman. I, I was speaking in Tokyo. Mm. And there's a gentleman who was the manager of the flagship branch of Uniqlo Corporation, which is the largest manufacturing of a clothes. has 100,000 employees or something. And he came to a program I did one evening, decided to come to a program I did called The Breakthrough Experience, where I introduced values. He then did, defined his own values very concisely. He was very meticulous about it. He wanted to make sure he was objective about it. He then went on to a training program I did on the applications of values in business for leaders and managers. He brought it back to his company. 
brought it to five people and implemented it with five people. He noticed a spike in their focus and their engagement and their, their productivity. He then took it to 15 more. He noticed the same thing. He then uh, met with five branches of Uniqlo and shared it with them. And they took it and they went to some more. I think they ended up with about 15 or 16 mm-hmm. total branches that they implemented this with. Tadashi Unai, who's the CEO or the founder who took it over from his father, this company, is a billionaire, noticed at the end of the year when they were giving awards out that 11 of the 15 organizations that had done this were the ones that got the awards that year. So he said, what's the, the key? And he said, well, we've been doing this process of engagement that's helping the people find meaning in their career because nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what's meaningful to them. We live our lives mostly through work these days, and yet we try and shut down people as if we're industrial clones. What a crazy thing. It's crazy. You're changing that whole dynamic. So, right? so what happens is Tadashi met with me. He, he contacted and asked if I could meet with him. I sat mm-hmm. with him. We spent about four hours together. And uh, he said, what exactly is this thing? How does it work? What's, what's behind it? And then he told the guy, you're now, instead of managing this flagship, you're now responsible for teaching this around the world. So they're now spreading that around the world. So engagement is valuable and productivity is valuable, but there is a science on how to engage people. And it's reproducible. And it's not being reflected upon and really honored enough yet because what's happened is that we're still coming from I know best, I'm mm. hiring somebody that's not engaged, they're not screening people well, mm. and they're having to micromanage and push things down on them because they're not inspired to do it. And, then, and these are all symptoms, and then they're creating HR and, and all this bureaucracy in there to deal with all that instead of actually making sure that they select. As Dr- Drucker said it really well. He says that anything that's going on, it still goes back to management. Yes. You're either hiring somebody or you're not inspiring somebody. And, and getting them engaged reduces the cost it reduces the management. It allows the people to get on at the highest levels to do the things that are creative and executive, like Alec McKenzie said in The Time Trap, to get out there and do the visionary work that needs to be done mm-hmm. and not be dealing with the minutia. That's extraordinary because most of us spend our lives dealing with symptoms, as you said. So we're dealing with the, you know, the sniffle from the cold, the headache from the bad lifestyle. So we take an aspirin rather than getting down to the fundamentals of dealing with the lifestyle. And what you're talking about to me is you're dealing with the fundamental metastructures of lifestyle and thinking and of activities in the world. And that seems to be the gift that you're offering to people. You're working at a fundamental level. And somehow you seem to have the clarity to keep that. And I'm going to ask you, if I may, a personal question. What are your personal disciplines to keep yourself in the space, keep yourself clear? I mean, do you, do you meditate? Do you run? What, what do you do? I research, write, travel, teach. Right. I, I have, I, before I go to bed at night, I document what I had the opportunity to do. It's mm-hmm. a gratitude journal of everything I had the opportunity to do that day. So I'm going to note that. It's a number one gratitude journal. I okay. do that every day. Right. It's over 4,000 pages, and it's 10-point, and it's one-inch margins, and it's, I document it every day. Because uh, I like to go to bed on that. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, that's a great place to begin reflection. And I find that if I'm in a, a greater degree of gratitude, my mind is clear to make wiser executive decisions. Because mm. when we're in a state of gratitude, we're more authentic than when we're not. And then from that perspective... And can I say, you're seeing wider as well. You see wider. Fear closes down your peripheral vision and in your mind. Where exactly. Gratitude and creativity will open you to Well, gratitude is a perfectly equilibrated mind. Yeah. And fear or fantasy yeah. is a disequilibrated mind. Yes, well, that makes sense. We're assuming, uh, fear is an assumption that you're about mm. to experience more pains and pleasures in the mm. future through imagination or sense. 
and uh, phobia is, is that, and philia, its opposite, is the assumption you're going to experience more positive negatives. Both of these are delusive, and both of these mislead and distract an objective mind. So you're looking for the objective mind. So you're, you're doing gratitude, which is an affective thing. So the effective thing, the emotional thing, will actually clear the mind. That's a really interesting combination to make. You will sleep, and then you will get up and reflect on this. So you have a reflective discipline as well. And then what I do is, I, for many years, I don't have to do it every day today, mm. but for many years, I took Mary Kay, who did a, a big business around the world. She said, when I, I spoke to her group about 30 years ago, to about 4,500 women, and I then had the opportunity to have a special meeting with her. Mm. And, and I asked her, what would the advice you'd give a 30-something-year-old kid you know, who aspires to want to travel the world and be a speaker? And she said, every day, write down the six or seven highest priority actions you can do that day that moves you one step closer to your dream. And then do those actions and don't write down 30 or 40 and have goal overrun where you feel it defeated at the end of the day. Only write the highest priority ones and make sure they're really, truly high priority, not, a, not just a do list. But a priority list. And not the things you think you ought to be writing down. It's not ought to. It's the parental values, the authentic ones. It's the ones that give the most productivity and the most meaning. Right. And and, and I have a system that I use for companies where I ask people to make a list of everything they do in a day. Mm -hmm. And everything in a day. Personal and professional. And then I organize that into personal and professional. Mm -hmm. And then we go through there and ask, what does it produce? What is the actual economic productivity out of that action what does it produce per hour break it down and extrapolate it into an hour and then and it's quite obvious when they do that they go oh my god i'm really minoring in majors and majoring in minors here then i ask them in the next column is put a rating on a one to seven scale of meaning what's the meaning of this so you get them to sort out just to recap so i don't miss any of this so you get them to sort out what the things they must do to be productive they mustn't no, this is not major must. and minor. This, this is just identifying major, right? what they're actually doing. Oh, I see. And then not what they must do. This is just what are they doing? So ob- observation again, the yes. scientific method. So yes. you're coming into it with that way, right? Get it. And what are you doing? Yeah. And then now put down what is that actually produced per hour? Right. Okay. Now I did this uh, when I was 28 years old. Mm-hmm. After reading a book, The Time Trap, I, I did this discipline. Then put meaning next to it. And put a one to seven scale, seven being really extremely meaningful and inspiring to you versus non-meaningful. And then another column is how much is the replacement cost to have that delegated to somebody else who's a specialist right. at the same competent level. And then the next one is how much time is spent. So you're looking then to encourage people to delegate the stuff that they shouldn't be doing because they can, right? And anything that's not in their highest values right. ultimately is going to be delegated. Because they're not going to be core competent. They're not going to be driven to do it. They're going to be needing motivation to do it. And they're not going to be inspired to go to work. But the perfectionist neurosis will get them to grab hold of that and not let go of it, right? So there is something about they will have. Neurosis, well, if they right? can't delegate, they're trapped. Right. You, you, in, in order to delegate, you have to serve people to earn the income to co- cover the cost. Hmm. Delegation forces you to keep your focus on serving people. Exactly. So once you delegate to make sure that works right, you've got to be there. You can't micromanage, so you've got to find ways to, to them, liberate them focus. Yes, and that, that forces yeah. you then to master the skill of mm-hmm. hiring people who are congruent with that job description. Now, Excellent. we have a big thing mm-hmm. in, the, in the companies today, and I, and I confront this in almost every company I face. Not 100%, but about 90-something percent. They have this fantasy that there's a corporate value system. 
And this is really a, a traditional idea. That it what's is the, a fantasy. What's the values yes, of this company? And we'll put it up there and we'll write it. And oh, I know. To learn our values I, and be them. Right? I, I worked with a company in Houston called Williams Energy Company. Hmm. It's a big company. Hmm. They had their values up on a, on a wall. And I interviewed about 100 people at this little food place outside from that wall. And I asked if anybody even knew them. Nobody ever knew what they were. It was just something a PR person put together. Every individual has a unique set of values. And so a company, whoever leads the company's values is going to filter through the system. And it's nice if you could actually have a CEO every time match those values. But the real truth is the hierarchy of the values of the individual is going to dictate the destiny of that company. That's and so we need to know what that really is and, and, and not just set up idealisms that nobody lives by. That's hypocrisy because then there's no real appreciation from the people below because they don't see congruency in behavior. So it means nothing. It, it, it breaks down. So identifying what the real core values of that leader is and then the core values of the executive teams and then coalescing those. I love doing that, bringing those together and coalescing those into a unified value structure that is allowing everybody to meet their needs. They spontaneously are engaged now in the company. So they may come up with some words to deal with this, but those words have emerged and they're sort of representations of how they feel so they mean something now. If it's not meaningful to them, they're not working. The perception of ownership of a company is proportionate to the congruency. They feel that they're working in their company, not a company. And you can hear it in the, in the, whether it's first person, second person, or third person expression when they ask him about, tell me about the company you work for. Well, my company, or that, our company, or the company, you can tell how engaged they are by their language, where they put it in the positioning. So there's a huge amount about you, which is acute social observation and acute introspective observation as well. I'm, I'm getting that from you. Now, I've asked you a couple of things about what's trending. We, we've got a short time left, and I've got two more questions for you. The first one is what else is trending? Besides the digital age and the authenticity age that we're having to, to face, can't, we can't autocratically project onto people like dictators and companies like mm-hmm. we did in the industrial age. It's too transparent today. Social media will destroy that. Right. I think we also have no choice but to think global today because it's all global today. In fact, you don't have any choice. We think, let's think global. Actually, there's no choice. You have to go global. With it. It's the water we swim in and, and for our minds. We, we've got to be global. We've got to think that way. I've yeah. said for probably 35 years almost that you can't make a difference in yourself until you have a vision as big as your family. You can't make a difference in your family until you have a vision as big as your community. You can't make a difference as a leader in a community unless you have a vision as big as your city. You can't become a leader of a city until you have a vision as big as a state. You can't be a state leader until you have a vision of the nation can't be a national leader until you have a global vision mm-hmm. and you can't have a global impact unless you have an astronomical vision and the real calling of the individual doesn't put a limit on it as emerson says mm-hmm. it calls us to ever greater concentric spheres and when we are authentic we get to expand that and when we're not we get to be stagnant we're running out of time it's been an absolute extraordinary conversation thank you but i've got one one last question i'll ask you is how is your life how's my life mm. Well, I'm doing pretty well on a daily basis what I love to do, what I set out to do. I research, write, travel, teach today. And I have a fifth one, research, write, travel, teach. And I have a lovely girl that I'm dating right now. My oh. wife passed away. Oh, and uh, so I have a lovely lady named Trish. So I, I jokingly say this. I get in trouble for it. And she builds a second story on the doghouse. <laughs> uh, I say I research, write, travel, teach Trish. <laughs> 
But but uh, she has me around number seven on her value list. So. Oh well, that's the start. So maybe we can work out there. A but little but bit I I've been pretty yeah. blessed. I get to yeah. I get to travel the world. I get to meet amazing people. Right. I get to go to extraordinary places, and I get to do what I love every day. And I really believe that people have the capacity to do that, where their vocation and vacation can be the same. And you're serving. You're doing things for other people, right? That's well, I don't think do. I don't think you can have fulfillment narcissistically no, without the altruistic side. You need both. I tell people in the seminars, I want you to expand your altruistic and your narcissistic capacities to the fullest. I want you to go out and do the vast service to vast numbers of people, and I want you to live a vast life. That's a wonderful ending. Thank you very much. This is Henny Business Radio with a fascinating interview with a fascinating man who's lived an extraordinary life. Please follow us on hashtag What's Trending until our next interview. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Henley Business Radio. Henley Business School, building the people who build the businesses that build Africa.